So growing up in my Episcopal church in Oakland, St. John's, as a little girl, I absolutely hated Lent. It was the worst. We had to bury and not say the dreaded A word during Lent that rhymes with rah-ray-roo-rah. <laughs> And the worst of all, what insulted my soul as a little girl, is that we gave up flowers. Every week, up on our columns behind the altar, we had these big, ugly brass urns with plants, like a fern. They just sat there green and leafy and boring, and I just hated it. It was the absolute worst. And I'm sorry to say I did not mature much when I went off to seminary to become a priest. I studied at a school in Virginia right across the river from Washington, D.C. And when we had our Lenten quiet days on campus where we were supposed to be prayerful and our more pious students would wear these long black robes and kind of mope around the campus, I always took that opportunity to ditch school and to go check out a museum in D.C. And there was one Lenten quiet day where I ended up at the U.S. Botanical Gardens, which are fabulous. And it just so happened that the day I was there for my Lenten quiet day, they had an orchid exhibit. And it was extraordinary. I mean, orchids from all over the world, all colors and shapes and sizes. It was magnificent. And as I walked through this exhibit, I came upon an orchid that was the most beautiful flower I'd ever seen. It was bright orange, fiery kind of red. And when I got closer to it, I realized, and I kid you not, it had sparkles in the petals. Sparkles. And I thought to myself, why do we make ourselves sad for no good reason during the season of Lent when we have a God who makes orchids that sparkle for Pete's sake? I don't get it. We're supposed to wander around in sackcloth and ashes and berate ourselves during Lent when God is busy making all of these beautiful plants that shine and delight us. How can we not? sing out with joy, and say the A-word with every step, even in Lent. And I have some good company from our scriptures this morning. You see, I was wanting to put God into a box. When I went to Sunday school, I learned about what a loving God we have. Jesus loves me, this I know, right? Jesus is a loving, loving Savior. God is a loving God. And I wanted God to stay in that box. And the idea of a God that might ask me to repent of my sins or that even engages in the idea of sin is a God that didn't fit inside my box. And so Moses is walking in the desert and he sees a burning bush that is not consumed. And he engages in conversation with God. And Moses wants to know, what is your name? Moses wants to understand who this God is. 
I think Moses maybe was expecting God to say something like, I am the Lord, the destroyer of the unrighteous and the savior of the good people and the creator of all the planets and the stars and the galaxies. He wants God to say who he is. And this is an important thing in the Hebrew scriptures. Somebody's name was vital to who you were. Remember Jacob, who was wrestling with the angel, and he got a new name, Israel. He went from Jacob to a nation of people. It defined who he was. So Moses' question is making sense. Who are you? What are you? What shall we call you? And what is God's answer? I am who I am. Or more accurately, when we study the Hebrew, we find that it has kind of a future twist to it. So it's more like, I will be who I will be. So not only is God just vague, but God is this vague and ever-changing thing. I will be who I will be. And look at the Galileans, or the, uh, the people, the crowd that Jesus is engaging with who ask about the Galileans. They come up to Jesus and say, oh, look at those guys, huh? They totally got killed, and those people had the tower fall on them. They must have been really bad sinners. They want to put God in a box. They want to understand that when bad things happen to, bad, to good people, it's because they're bad. They want a God who has that kind of mentality that they themselves had. The understanding at that time was if something bad happened to you, it was because you deserved it and you were a bad person. They wanted to put God into that box. And what was Jesus' answer? Repent. Repent. Look at your own stuff. It's frustrating. We ask these questions that are deep, meaningful, yearning kind of questions, and God gives us these very strange answers. But the thing about these answers is that all of them are invitations to the desert. Think about Moses. I will be who I will be. God is inviting Moses to deliver his people, to take them on this 40-year journey into the wilderness to see and understand and to know the love of God. When the people say to Jesus and ask their question, and he says, well, you should repent, that's an invitation to the desert, to the desert in our own hearts, where we question ourselves where we examine ourselves, where we look for that which gets in the way of God. And for me, I've come to believe that that's really what Lent is. It's an invitation to the desert. For some of us, our personal desert is a dry, barren land without chocolate. For some of us, it's a dry, barren land where instead of reaching for our cup of coffee in the morning, we sit down to pray and meditate. And then we have our coffee. It looks different for each and every one of us, but yet that invitation is the same. When we have questions, God says, come. Come to the desert. I suspect on that day that I was at the Botanical Conservatory that had I just turned another corner, I would have ended up in the desert exhibit. And I would have seen cacti 
and all kinds of bushes in bloom, on fire with reds and yellows and oranges and pinks. Perhaps in that desert, I would have found the flowers that my soul longed for as a child all during Lent. So let this Lenten season be for you an invitation to come. Come to the desert. Come to know the name of God. Amen. Amen.